In your Bibles tonight to the book of Romans chapter 12. And how did you know? And if you need a Bible, you could just raise your hand and uh, Stu will make his way up and down and uh, see to it that you have one so that you can follow along with us in our study. Romans chapter 12. Last week we, um, we really covered some ground. We, we got all the way to the end of verse 1. And um, this week we should get to the end of verse 2. So let's read it together. From the beginning, Romans chapter 12, Paul writes to the church at Rome. And he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In our study last week, we crossed into a new section of the book of Romans. After 11 chapters of Paul giving to us an explanation of all that God has done for us from the time that we were lost and dead in our sins and looking forward to our glorification when we're in heaven with him and the work that he completed on our behalf after giving us 11 chapters of all that God has done. He now shifts gears and he turns the focus, the spotlight, if you would, on us. And he asks the question, so to speak, how then shall we respond? Or how then shall we live in light of what God has done for us? And as we saw in verse 1 last week, he begins by telling us that our reasonable response, our reasonable service is to offer ourselves, our bodies specifically, as a living sacrifice that had been made holy and acceptable unto God. And he says that that's our reasonable service. But perhaps you've noticed as maybe you went home after last week's study and maybe in your heart you felt yourself praying and saying, yes, Lord, I want to be a living sacrifice. I want to live completely for you. Let my life forever burn upon the altar of living sacrifice. Well, if you are anything like me and you prayed that prayer or you've positioned your heart in such a manner as to want to live that way, then you've discovered as I have that that's not real easy, is it? It's a challenging thing to do. Now, I have no problem with anything that verse 1 says. I have no problem with Paul's beseeching of me to respond in such a way. I have no problem following his logic and reason that he lays before us as he tells us it's a reasonable service for us to do such a thing. I have no problem with his request and what he's asking for. And I have no problem at all with the sacrifice part. I'm a father and a husband. I know all about sacrifice. So uh, none of that stuff scares me. That I'm fine with all of it. But there's one word in that one verse right there that scares the daylights out of me. It's the word living. See, if, if it was just to lay myself down as a sacrifice, as, as a lamb would have been brought in the Old Testament and laid upon the altar there to be consumed and burned up and it was done once and for all, 
then hey, no problem. I'll, I'll raise my hand. I'll stand up. I'll come forward. I'll make a profession, make my confession. And hey, I've done it. I've presented myself a living sacrifice. It's a done deal. But that's not what it says. It says it's a living sacrifice. And thus, it's something that is constant. It's an implication that means it's a continual thing that has to happen. That, that it, the, the will that I exercised in getting upon the altar must also be daily exercised to keep me there. That I have the freedom as a free moral agent to get on and off that altar of living sacrifice as I will, as it suits, or as the difficulty increases or decreases. But to be a living sacrifice is something that is constant, continual, and daily. Now, the Bible says that when we come to Christ, the Bible defines that experience as being born again. The Bible says that it's being born again. And that means that it's a start of a whole new life. That every implication that comes with being born naturally also applies to being born spiritually. And just as a baby is born, and almost there's a sense that when that baby comes out, you look at it in wonder and awe of what's been made. But if you've had any life experience at all, something within you looks at that baby and says, you have no idea what you're in store for. Is that baby who just innocently relies upon its parents, who just for the first time expands its lungs and takes its first breath, it has no idea what's to come. And the same thing is true for someone who's newborn in Christ. There's an incredible miracle that's taken place. It's a glorious majesty to see someone who's been translated from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. They've gone from blindness, and now they see something that they've never seen before. The Bible says that they were dead, and yet now they are alive. They were finite in their being, but now they are infinite to live forever. And there's something majestic and miraculous about it. But at the same time, it's as if God, our Father, who knows about life, who knows about spiritual things, would look down and say, it's so wonderful, but you have no idea what you've just gotten yourself into. (laughs) <laughs> you know, in, in one sense, because of what this means to be born again and what's going to happen now, the challenges of living this Christian life. Now, we're called to be a living sacrifice, and that means that we're to do it while we're living. It, it would be really easy if we were called to live in seclusion, to just go, okay, well, now you've been born again, so go join the monastery. And go up into the woods where you'll never see anybody, so you don't have to worry about any of the conflicts that will come from seeing other people. You're not really going to talk to anybody, so none of the conflicts will come from speech or any of that. You won't be exposed to the world, and so therefore there will be no temptation or anything that will trip you up or hinder you in your spiritual walk. So you're a living sacrifice, so now just go live somewhere where you're not touched by life. But it doesn't work that way. We've been called to be a living sacrifice and at the same time still hold on to all of the responsibilities and implications that we carry as we live. We still have to hold down a job. We still have to have responsibilities. We still have to relate to people and we still have to raise families and do the things that, that, that normal people do even though now we've been born again and we desire to be a living sacrifice. But... To remain a living sacrifice in the daily part of life often proves more difficult than we initially think it will when we're sitting in a service and just responding to the overflowing love of God within our hearts. 
We're here and we say, yes, God, but then we leave, we get into the thick of life and we say, oh no, I had no idea. What does this mean? Now, thankfully, parenthetically, I have to say, thankfully, it's God that performs all of this work within us. It's God that works in us to make us the living sacrifice. He's the one that works in us to make us more than conquerors through him that loved us. Philippians 1 6 says that he who began a good work in us, that he also will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. That it isn't about our effort and our straining and our sweat and trying to live the Christian life. But rather what we discover as we walk with him is that he's the one that's performing the work. And I'm thankful for that. The Bible also says in Philippians 2.13 that it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that means that even the decisions that you make and the willingness that you have to lay upon that altar and to give your life completely into his hand, that even your willingness to do that is his work within your life. And I'm so thankful that he's the Alpha and Omega, not just of the world and its creating creation, but he's also the Alpha and the Omega in my life and in yours and the things that he's doing. Now that's true. He is the doer of the work. But the question remains, and the fact remains, that Paul is still writing these words to us. And so what part then do we play? Because listen, we do play a part. What part do we play in this call that we have placed upon us to be a living sacrifice? Or, to put it another way, how do we remain, as Christians, separated unto God? How do we remain a living sacrifice in a world that's separated from God? How do we swim against a flow that is constantly getting stronger against us and seeking to hinder us in our pursuit of the things of Him? Now, there's no simple answer to this question. Every one of us here is different. We have different struggles. We have different life circumstances. We have different trials and levels of difficulty and things that we have to face. And so, therefore, there's no simple answer that just applies to everybody to say, well, just do this and you'll have a a great time being that living sacrifice and you'll find the Christian life easy. Because there is no simple blanket answer to, to something like that. But the common key and the thing that Paul is going to keep drawing from as we continue on through Romans chapter 12 is that the key is in many ways in the way that you think. The way that you think and position your mind plays a huge part in how we participate in what God is doing in our lives. Now throughout the rest of this chapter, Paul's going to challenge us to change the way we think in three specific areas. First of all, in our verse tonight, he's going to challenge us to change the way we think about life. It's very easy to say, and he does it in such short form, one verse, but yet it's such a huge thing to do, to change the way we think about life, and then to change the way we think about ourselves, and then to change the way we think about others. That there's a total transformation in the way that we're to think and that these things are absolutely necessary if we want to live a life that's separated unto God or that would be called a living sacrifice. Now we cannot see change like this happen within our lives unless we first change the way we think. And so Paul challenges us here in verse 2 to change the way we think, first of all, about life itself. Right there at the beginning of verse 2, 
he begins by saying this. He says, and be not conformed to this world. And be not conformed to this world. The first thing that Paul lays before us as he's challenging us to change the way that we think about life is that we must first be separated from that which we used to do. To be not conformed to this world. Did you know that the world, and when I talk about the world, I'm talking about the world and its systems, the world and its ways, the world and its citizenship, the world's system as a whole. And did you know that the world does not take its cues from God? That the world is not looking to the Lord and saying, we want to follow his ways and establish his principles for success and blessing. The world doesn't take its cues from God. The world takes its cues, rather, from, first of all, the inward impulses and desires of man. That, hey, whatever you will, do it. Whatever you feel, feel it. Whatever you want, get it. Whatever your soul lusts after, take it. And the world takes its cues from those impulses and desires. The world also takes its cues from the outward influence of others. What does the current of culture say? What are the trends of the time? And the world looks on at those things that are current and cultural and it draws its cues from it. It it conforms its thinking and its systems to that which is currently working in the culture. And then third of all, the world takes its cues from observed images and suggestions that come through the airwaves. Things like TV and movies, radio and media, and all of those outlets that are there that everybody kind of can tune into and plug into. And the world in many ways, maybe more than any other, takes its cues from the things that are pumped through the airwaves and, and, and made available for everyone to see. Those things direct the current and the flow of the culture. And so the world gets its influence from those things in everything from its priorities And what's important in life, it comes from the world. It comes from those things. From the way that people act and their personality, it comes from those things. The inward impulses, the influence of others, and the images of media. And the presentation of self. The way we look, the way we dress, the way we act and talk, the kind of language and voice inflections and speech patterns that we use. It all is influenced in many ways from the world. But Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says this about the world and where it gets its cues. Paul writes and he says, And you hath he quickened, or made alive, who were once dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. He's making a distinction between the course of this world and the things of the Lord. And he says that before we came to Christ, we had our lifestyle in the things of this world. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That Satan in many ways is influencing and feeding many of those outlets, the things wherein the world takes its directives. Among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. 
that, that the world is so contrary to the things of God, the ways of God, that God looks on at the ways of the world and its systems, and he says that it's nothing but set up for wrath. Just children of wrath. In 1 John chapter 2, verses uh, 15 through 17, John makes distinction also between the world and the kingdom of God in this way. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He says that here's the problem with the world, is that first of all, everything that is of the world automatically is not of the Father. That the two things are in stark contrast one to another, and that there's no terms of relationship between the two. There is the world, and there is that which is of the Father, and the two things are absolutely exclusive from each other. The other problem, he says, is that everything that's in the world, all of its affections, all of its lust, all of the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh, and everything that those that are in the world seek for, it's perishing. It's passing away. It's not lasting. It cannot sustain but it is dying slowly and surely it will all pass away. Well, the Bible goes further in making this distinction. Not only are there two different courses, not only are they exclusive from each other, but James makes the distinction in James chapter 4, verse 4, and James says it this way. He says, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That not only are they distinct in their ways, and not only are they separate in who they serve and where they're going, but the Bible says that you cannot be on both paths at the same time. You cannot be living in confirmation to this world and also serving the will of the Father. That to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Absolutely. And conversely, logically, it follows that if you are the friend of God, that you are not a friend of the world. That's why Jesus said, if, you, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Because the two things are distinct from each other. Now the world has its own code of ethics and value. It's not just that there are citizens, those that are perishing with the world and lust, but the world has its whole system that's been, you know, set up in, in you know, detail over time. The world says and tells and, and breathes upon the people of the planet and says, this is what it means to be attractive. And the world defines attractiveness in a certain way, that these are the dimensions of what makes a human being attractive. This is what makes a style attractive. This is what it looks like. And the world sets that up in this way. And then, and thus, you have people that are killing and starving themselves literally to try to fit into this image of what the world says is attractive. But that's what the world says is attractive. That's what's accepted. The world says this is what's valuable. That this paper, this monetary substance, 
This Federal Reserve note that even holds the words, in God we trust, but this is valuable, this paper, this same thing that you would write a note on or tear up as it comes in the form of junk mail that is backed by absolutely nothing, but this is that which you kill and steal and cheat and you do whatever you've got to do to get it because this is what is valuable. And the world says that is what is real value. The world looks on and it says that this is necessary. These are the things that you've got to have. You must have a cell phone and it has to be able to have internet access and watch videos and all this stuff. And you've got to have it. It's, it's absolutely necessary. You've got to have a vehicle and that vehicle better have global positioning, GPS. Because otherwise, who are you? You're no one. And it better not have any rest. And these are the things that are valuable that you've got to have. These are necessary for you in your life. The world defines fulfillment and says this is what fulfilling is and people watch on as oprah sits with her guest people there around a table smiling and laughing and talking about what's fulfilling in life and people look on and say that's what i'm lacking that's what i need that's the thing as the world then tells people what will fulfill them the bible says this is what defines wealth that once you cross this line that then that is considered wealth or the world says that this is wisdom or this is the symbol of education, that if you have an MD after your name, that that makes you better than someone else, more educated, more intelligent, more esteemed, more better. Bahabism. <laughs> that if you've been to Princeton, that if you've been to Harvard, that if you've been to Yale, that that's the, that's the extreme of excellence, and that's what you need if you're going to go anywhere in the world. But yet John would look on. God would look on from his throne in his heaven and he would see all of the things that the world holds in such high value and esteem and he would say all of these things are fading away. That slowly, little by little, they're eroding and they're becoming less and less and ultimately they will die and they will mean absolutely nothing. In Luke chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus looked on at a group of people that were looking for some worldly form of recognition. And he said, don't you know that the things which are highly esteemed among men are an abomination unto God? That there is a distinction between that which God esteems and that which the world esteems. But we, you and I, as citizens of this planet, we are taught from a very young age how to take our cues from the world. And we do it. We grow up doing it. I mean, I've watched over the course of my life, and I've never once for my whole life carried a purse. But I've seen many people that have. And I remember when purses were just the regular size. It was just a purse. It was something that would carry just the necessary things. But then time went by, and it became very stylish to just carry a small purse. And so everybody would shove everything that they had, and you'd have these little tiny purses just exploding at the seams because you can't carry a larger purse than this. It's just not, this isn't what people are doing these days. And nowadays, it's a suitcase. I mean, all you have is a cell phone and a checkbook. And you see people can't even find that because they've got their head halfway in the purse trying to find everything. But this is what we've got to have. You've got to have this purse because this is, this is what it is. You know, this is what, what it, what's there. I mean, I remember back in the day when, you know, when in the 1980s, there was like those Tom Cruise sunglasses with the plastic frame and the dark shades. And if you couldn't see the eyes, it was cool. But then, you know, that kind of rolled over into the wire rim thing with the, you know, not totally opaque lenses, but kind of translucent with color. You know, you could see the eyes. Now you look at sunglasses today and it's like, what, are you an insect? 
act. What is that? I mean, you can't even see your face. I mean, the things, it's like it's a contest to see who can have the biggest sunglasses. And all of a sudden, these things that make absolutely no sense on a practical level, everybody has to have them. It used to be that you had like the raccoon tan line. Now it's like, you know, your whole face is just white. You got a tan line right here, like a mustache. You know, why? This is the world. This is what's in. This is what we do. I remember neckties. You know, you would watch every five years. You'd have to see everybody would have this little tiny knot on their necktie. And then a few years would go by and everybody would have this huge knot on their necktie. And then it would swing back to the, to the thing. And it's like, well, what's going on? What's the current? If I have a big knot, is everybody going to look at me funny if I have a little knot? How about this? You ever thought about how ridiculous it is to wear a tie at all? I mean, really? <laughs> who, <laughs> who was the first person that came out of the dressing room and looked at their wife and said, hey, honey, how do you think this looks? And they had this necktie hanging down the front of the thing. I mean, what, should, what is that? What are you wearing? You know? And every time I put on a tie, I can't help but think, who was the first person to ever do this? And yet somehow it catches on. And this is what we do. This is professional. But I wonder if those before the days of necktie ties, if they could look into the current day and see what people are wearing, they would say, what are they doing? Why? Because this is what we do. We take our cues from the world. Well, how about the, the way we wear our jeans? First it was, you know, high-rise, and then it was mid-rise, and then it was low-rise. And now it's no-rise. You know, everybody's got their, their pants buckled here, you know, underneath, and the boxers come up. And, and yet, that, now we look at that, we say, well, that doesn't make sense. What if you had to run? You know, where, what are you going to do? And yet, everybody, you look around, and everybody is doing it. Because why? Because we know how to take our cues from the world. I remember just a couple years ago. I know I'm belaboring this, but it's just so fun. <laughs> Georgia and I, you know, we were listening to this comedian talk about uh, going to the gym and having black socks on. You know, he's, he's just talking about how much he didn't belong in the gym and how he's like, oh, I had black socks on. And it was hilarious because we were thinking to ourselves, who wears black socks at the gym? Let me tell you something. Go to a gym today. That's in. Everybody's got black socks on at the gym. Every, in fact, I wear white socks and I feel like, oh, I don't want anybody to see my white socks. You know, I'm, I'm so out of it and everything. But where do these things come from? See, because we learn to take our cues from the world from a very young age. And then we get older and the menu changes, but the method remains the same. No longer is it just the things of fashion. That's petty stuff. That's minuscule. But we still take our cues from the world. What do we do for a career? Well, we know intuitively, innately from observation that every career carries with it or has it associated with it a class and an income. Well, if I'm a doctor, well, then that makes me better or more astute or more highly esteemed than someone who is simply just a laborer. And so I don't want to go for the labor job because it's just not the same class and the same income. That each job or career has a qualifying amount of education. We understand that. It's indoctrinated within us. That there's an image and a dress code associated with the class of person that I desire to be. There are also behavioral expectations, things that I do recreationally, the type of neighborhood that I live in, the type of house that I have, the types of cars that I drive, and the way that I retire. All of that is kind of ingrained, and we take our cues from that as we make decisions that are going to form the course of our life. We look on and say, well, how does the world do it? What do they do in the real world, we ask. But what Paul is telling us here is that if we want to be those that are separated unto God, 
and we want to be those that are used and blessed of him, then we must first be those that are not conformed to this world. That we be those people that we say we're no longer going to take our cues and get our directives from the way the world things are, are doing, but we're going to be separate. Now, when we do, when we as Christians say that I'm going to be conformed or that I'm going to take my cues from the world, we're sending a message. There's something that's being said. There's an identifying that we are, 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 are you know, engaging upon, giving ourselves to, and, and, and with that, you know, things of the world, and, and thus we're hiding the identity that we have in Christ. When your identity is your profession or what you're doing or where you live or how you live, then that somehow hides and masks the identity that's been swallowed up in Christ. And that's why Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3, he says, if then you be risen with Christ, he says, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. He says, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Set your affections on things that are lasting and that carry weight and real value, not on things that are temporary and passing away and that can't hold any real value. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have style. And it doesn't mean that we can't have any flavor, that we should all just wear white t-shirts and white pants and get halos and, you know, kind of try to bring that around as the, the end thing, you know, or something. That's not what Paul's saying here. But the question is, and the point that he's seeking to make as he tells us these things, is he's asking us, are you, Christian, a thermometer or are you a thermostat? A thermometer is something that simply just reflects the conditions of the atmosphere that it's in. It just tells the temperature. The temperature is set from a completely outside source and you just simply conform yourself to whatever that temperature is and you just express it as it is. But a thermostat sets the temperature. It tells the trend. It doesn't conform to what's going on around it, but rather it changes the atmosphere around it to affect others that are in the room. Now when he says that, he's not talking about things in things that are perishing. He's not saying that you should be the one that sets the trend. You should be the one that, you know, busts a sag first, you know, so that everyone can catch on to that. That's not what he's talking about. It's not in earthly things that don't matter, but rather he's telling us that we're to be thermostats in things that have real value in giving the world something to see of something that will last, something that's real. Perhaps you know his story. He was just a teenager maybe 16, 17 years old. He was on the cusp of manhood, ready for life to really begin. But in a tragic series of events, his parents were killed, he was orphaned, and he was carried off into a a land that was foreign to him. He was carried off captive into a land that wasn't his. He had a lot going for him. He had a lot of wisdom. He was a good-looking, handsome young man. He was well put together. And because of that, he was chosen to be a part of the royal court. He was going to be one who would serve the king. He would be in the courts of the king, the presence of royalty. But with that privilege, there came also a provision. The Bible tells us that he was offered there in that place, in that foreign land, at that young age, he was offered a portion of the king's meat. 
And he was offered a portion of the king's wine. And all of the delicacies of the king and of the kingdom were laid before him for the taking. And with that provision that he was given, there also came a decision that he had to make. That Daniel, this young man, though he was young and inexperienced in life, he knew that if he were to partake of these things that were being set before him in this land that wasn't his, that he would be doing two things. That first of all, to partake would be first to conform. That he would be conforming. That the subtle suggestion under the surface as those things were offered to him is that this is how it's done here in Persia. This is how we do things. This is the diet of royalty. This is the lap of luxury. And if you're going to operate within this class... If you're going to be in the presence of this royalty, then these are the things that you do. And that culture was pushed upon him. The thermostat was set and secure, and now it was time for him to make a decision. Would he simply conform? Or wouldn't he? Everyone in Babylon had an eye on the king's table, looking at it, knowing that that's what luxury is. That's the standard of success and of bounty. But not only would that young man be conforming and identifying with Babylonian culture, he also knew this, that to partake would also be to defile himself spiritually, to contaminate the separation that he desired to give to God. That it would be to take himself off of the platform, the living sacrifice altar that God had placed him upon at such a young age. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, in the very days of his youth, this young man, Daniel, he made this decision and it tells us here that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. And therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. That this young man made a decision that he didn't want to conform and that he didn't want to defile himself. That he wanted to remain separate, remain holy, and not let the culture influence his personality. And so he makes a request. He calls aside the captain of the eunuchs, the one that would bring them their portion. And he would say, listen, I don't want to do this. This would be to me a great compromise to conform to this culture, to defile myself with these things that are foreign to me, that are not part of who I am as a man of God. He says, please, for 10 days, test your servants. Test us, prove us. Let us just eat vegetables and let us just eat fruits and pulse and juice. And, and, and in 10 days, if we're too skinny, if we're too you know, common and, and base and we're not strong enough to serve the king and do the things that we're called to do, then we'll submit and we'll do what it is you're asking us to do. But give us 10 days to change the temperature. Give us 10 days to prove that your system here is wrong. And the result of Daniel's stand the result of this young man purposing in his heart that he didn't want to conform and he didn't want to defile is that the Daniel diet became the diet of the day because it worked. They came to him 10 days later and they saw that he looked better. His friends and him, they were stronger. They were brighter, more alert. Their eyes were brighter. There was something in them that was, that was more powerful and more substantial and it worked. And rather than being influenced by the culture that he was in and conforming to his world, so to speak, he transformed, rather, the thinking of his day because he desired to be a living sacrifice, separate unto God. 
And not only did he shatter the philosophy of Babylonian bounty, but he also at the same time, and catch this, he turned heads as people looked on at his life from this point onward and said, what else does this young man do that might be fruitful and useful in life? And he became the kind of man that God could use. And through three kingdoms, Daniel was exalted to a position of prominence because he honored God rather than conforming to men. Now, when the Lord looks at your life and when he looks at my life, what does he see? When we stand before the God of glory in that day, when we're there before him and we see his face and we understand perfectly all that he's done for us and he looks at our life, what will his assessment of you be? Will he say you are a thermometer that you conform? In every way you tried to blend in, you just went with the flow and current of culture and your life made very little difference. Or will he look on and say you were a thermostat? You were one to whom people looked as a light, as Jesus said, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. As Jesus said, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, but it's put in a place where its light can give you know, brightness to those that behold and look. You were a thermostat. You were one to whom people could look and see that this is the way to live and this is what actually works, though it be contrary to the common flow of the culture. Where do you stand? What does God see? Paul says to us, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be ye transformed. Don't be conformed. Don't be a conformer, but rather be a transformer. Be transformed. And that's the second thing that Paul tells us as we look back in Romans chapter 12. Not only does he say that we're not to be conformed to this world, but then he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the Bible never gives a negative uh, kind of command, a command in the negative, without also giving a connecting positive. The Bible says, put off the old man, but then it says, put on the new man. The Bible says, put off lying but let every man speak truth with his neighbor. The Bible says, be not drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. That there's always, when there's a negative command, there's always a positive connection, something that we're to do instead. And here, he says, be not conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That that's what he's telling us, to be transformed. Now, the word transform means, and I know this is a tough one, change. That's what it means. To be transformed means to be changed. You catch it? It's Greek. I know Aramaic. It gets confusing, but to transform means to change. That means that you cannot be born again, living in Christ and continue to go about the same lifestyle that you did before you were born again, before you were separated from God. I know I've used the illustration before, but what, what if I came up here tonight and I was a little bit flustered and out of breath and running a little bit late and kind of coming up at the la- end of the last song and my papers were all kind of shuffled and I, I came up here and calmed myself down and I said, excuse me, please pardon me, forgive me. But I was on my way here and as I was walking through the parking lot, there was a Mack truck that was going about 80 miles an hour and it hit me. And right in the center, the big bulldog, just right in my forehead. And I just got hit by a Mack truck and, uh, and I'm just recovering from that. 
Now, you would look at me standing here, and you would see me, you know, appearing like this, just a little confused. And you would say, well, he's either really strong or he's lying. <laughs> because you don't get hit with a Mack truck at 60 miles an hour and then just look like what you look like standing up there. Well, listen, let me ask you this. When Jesus Christ came into your life, the Bible says that God, that God Almighty who spoke and said, light be and light was, that God who formed and placed the stars in the sky with the work of his fingertips, that rolled up his sleeve and worked the work of redemption, that God Almighty who knows the number of hairs on your head, that he moved into your heart. And if nothing happened to you when God Almighty moved into your heart, then I would question, did God Almighty move into your heart? If you're living the same exact way that you were before you came to Christ, before you laid yourself upon the altar of living sacrifice, then the question must rightly be asked, what did you really do? What did you really give yourself to? Because this is, listen, this is Christianity 101. This is the first breath of what Paul is telling us that we're to do as Christians in, in, in light of all that God has done. And in the first breath, he's saying, be changed. Be changed. God did not save you to leave you the way you were when you were lost and dead in your trespasses and sins. When you were walking according to the course of this world, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of your mind. He didn't come to save you and keep you like that. He came so that his light, the light of his glorious gospel, could come into this earthen vessel. And that he would clean it out by his word and by his blood. And that he would take up his residence inside. And that there would be a change in the way that we think, in the way that we act, the way that we live. And that we would go from conforming to the things of this world to being those that are transformed in our mind. And we are people of God. And Paul says that we need to be transformed. That we're to be changed by this work that God has done in us. Well, how, Paul? How does this change take place? Well, he goes on and he says that it begins with the renewing of your mind. He says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the word renew, I know this is tough Greek. We're getting into some, some more serious vocabulary. But the word renew means to make it new again. Re, I need this. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking down on you. I need, I need it broken down like that. So I'm just giving it to you the way I got it. You know, renew means make it new again. To renew it. To make it new. So if he's saying that our mind, which is the way we think, right? Our mind needs to be renewed. That means, you ever, how many people have an iPod? How many people, really? Okay. Okay, I had this iPod, right? And I filled it up to the brim. It had 60 gigabytes it could hold. And I filled it to the brim. All Bible teachings. I mean, it took forever to load these things on there. Billions of them, okay? And something happened to the iPod, and it had to be renewed, okay? When they renewed the iPod, guess what happened? Lost all the teachings. They were gone. They said, well, before we'll give you a brand new one, we got to try this. And they went, and all of a sudden it was like, whoa. <laughs> Do you know how long that took? You know, <laughs> But they renewed it, which means that they, they blanked it out and they're starting over again. And Paul is saying that transformation, change in the Christian life, to live this living sacrifice, is that the first step before anything else is that your mind needs to be renewed. It needs to be made new again. 
Well, how does this happen? How, how is it that somebody can have their mind renewed? Well, how did you learn to think before you came to Christ? When you were first born as a baby, how did you learn? Well, you were born. And first of all, before anything happened at all, you were pre-programmed by the DNA that was in you and what you inherited from your parents. You were pre-programmed to think in a certain way. And we all understand that. We think like our parents in a lot of ways. We realize that more and more the older that we get. You know, and we say, well, where did I get that? Well, that was in you. That's part of, uh, of the structure that made you up when you were born. Well, then, after you were born, you were placed in a family. And in that family, you watched what the other people did. You observed lifestyles and you took in all kinds of things. And little by little, the way you think was constructed within you. You learned. Then, your parents shipped you off to school for some strange reason. And, and they there said, okay, well, now you learn from them and let them teach you how to think a little bit because uh, we've done all we can do. And so, you know, you, you go off to school and there you grow up then and you go through the grades and you're downloaded with a set of ideals and a set of standards and a set of ethics and all these things that are being written upon you and maybe specific to where you grew up or where you were brought up or how you were educated, but you're taught how to think. And in all of that in place, the only other thing that you had to do was keep eating and keep breathing. And as long as you just keep eating and keep breathing, you're going to develop a, a thought process, a thought pattern as a human being before you come to Christ. Well, now the Bible says you need to renew it. You got to start over again. You're going to renew from the very beginning. Take it to the eye, to the Apple store and have them just zap it. And we're going to start over. Change the way you think. Well, how does it work? Well, the Bible says that we're born again. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so you're born. You're born again into Jesus Christ. This experience takes place. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. So then, now that we're born again, we're also then pre-programmed to think a certain way. Because now that Christ has been birthed within us, you know, now uh, there's a whole different set of ideals that are placed in our spiritual DNA. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says it like this. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He, he tells us there in verse 3 that his divine power, listen, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That there is a spiritual DNA that when you're born again, you are pre-programmed to think just like your parents, just like your father, which is in heaven. Like the spirit of God that bore you again, the incorruptible seed of the word of God. You're pre-programmed to think in that way. That's given to you at the time that you're born. And then you're born again. Hopefully you're placed in a family. You come to church and you're around other Christians, all kinds of Christians, new ones, middle ones, 
old ones, mature ones, immature ones, ones that are good examples of what you should do in Christ, ones that are bad examples of what you don't do in Christ. And they're in that family. You learn, you observe, you watch, you grow, you operate, you interact, you relate to people, and you're learning. Your thought process is being developed as you relate to and link with the body of Christ. Well then, all of that in place, you've been born again, you've been given your spiritual DNA, you're part of a family, you're being educated as you partake of the Word of God and Bible study, all of that in place, all you need to do now is eat. Eat. Well, eat what? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Job says, I have esteemed thy word more than my daily bread. Paul said that we're to be partakers of the meat of the word. Peter said, as newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, that the word of God is the food that we eat. And as we feed that DNA, as we feed that born again nature that's been placed within us, our mind becomes renewed. All things become new. The way we think, the way we act, the way we relate, it all becomes new. And then the Bible says that there are babies in Christ. And that newborn babies, that they should desire the sincere milk of the word. But then, as you grow, the Bible says that there are children in the faith. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul tells us that we should be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, you know, but, but grow up into him, into Christ, you know, as we keep, continue feeding. And then Paul talks about those that are of full age, those that are mature, that their minds have been renewed. He says in Hebrews five thirteen and 14, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word, for he is a babe, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The point that I'm making to you is that the way you see transformation take place within your life and a renewing take place in the way that you think is to cultivate and feed that which was placed in you at the time of your salvation. Fill yourself with the Word of God. And as you fill yourself now with the Word of God, not being conformed to this world, you will grow, you'll become stable, you'll be mature, and you'll be experienced and wise. That God will renew your mind, that there will be a transformation that takes place in your life. It will change the way you think. Now, I have seen this happen in my life, you know, be it ever so slowly and by such small degrees. But it's an incredible thing that happens when you begin to think, you know, with the mind of the Spirit. You know, believe me, I've got a long way to go. We do. But more and more, just in, in, a, in a single situation, there'll be a verse that will just pop into my head at just the right time. Something will happen. Someone will say something and that verse will just be right there. It'll come right up on the screen in my mind and, A soft answer turns away wrath. You know, I'm just about to explode. A soft answer turns away wrath. And, you know, I'm getting better at listening to it. (laughs) Realizing that, hey, my kids will do something, you know, they'll use the bookcase as a jungle gym, you know. (laughs) 
or something along those lines. And, you know, it happens. And then, you know, the next thing you know, there's a crash and a thing. And, you know, and, and, you know, the vein in my neck starts to bulge out and my teeth clamp down really hard. And I see the child there wounded and about to be more wounded, you know. And, and it'll just pop into my head. He that is often reproved hardens his neck and that without remedy. Take it easy. Relax. It's okay. I'm learning. Sometimes that verse just pops into my head at just the right time. Shut your mouth. I don't know where it is. It's somewhere in there. It pops up on the screen, you know. When I'm tempted to get anxious, when things, thoughts and fears about the future or about the present or circumstances come up, that, that verse will come into my mind. Just wait upon the Lord. He'll renew your strength. He'll perfect that which concerns you. He that, slum, he that keeps you doesn't slumber or sleep. He'll keep you as the apple of His eye. His thoughts towards you are for peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. No weapon that's formed against you will prosper. And these things, as your mind is renewed and the Word of God is written upon your heart, it changes the way you think. It changes the way you respond. It changes the way you live. There's a scene in the Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read the Pilgrim's Progress, I would say outside of the Bible, it is the absolute most important book that you can get as a Christian, is the Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan in the 1600s from a prison cell. And in part two of that book, his, his wife, you know, the character, gets saved after his death. And as she is just starting on her journey, her pilgrimage, she meets with the interpreter, who's a symbol of the, the Spirit. And the interpreter says something to her that just caught me, it gripped me, and it illustrates this point perfectly. He, he handed her a Bible, and he said, this is your food. Eat it, treasure it, take it in, read it and reread it, go over it again, until, he says, you have it by root of heart. Until you have it by root of heart. And I love that language because it's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Is that when the word of God has so been put, infused and put in and ingested and taken in and meditated on and digested and reworked and practiced and tried, that what happens is that it takes root within your heart. And then no longer is it necessarily about, well, did you read your chapter today? Or did you get through your Bible reading in a year kind of a thing? But does it have you by the heart? Is it so affecting your life that it comes up on the screen when the situation dictates? Are you living by it? Is it transforming you? Is it real? Is your mind being renewed? Well, Paul says that this renewing will take place within our mind as we do. That God's will then, and this is how he ends the verse, that God's will will become clearer and clearer as he closes the verse, he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're finished. I know we're out of time. But the question that I get asked probably more than any other when it comes to counsel or people expressing their concerns is people want to know what is God's will for my life? What does God have for me? What does God want for me? Where am I going now that I've laid down my life and placed it upon his altar? And I've often wished that I could have someone tell me that. You know, who do I go to and ask and say, God, what's your will for my life? What are you doing? And I never know. I don't ever know what God's will is for your life. I barely know what his will is for my life. But I do know how to discover it. And it's what Paul is telling us here. 
First of all, he says, don't be conformed to this world. If you're trying to do it the world's way, if you're trying to take your cues from the world, if you're reading the book on how to have a successful life, you know, the seven habits of highly successful people and, you know, how to be a billionaire in real estate. Listen, that's not God's will for your life. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Second thing is have your mind renewed as you're transformed from the old way of thinking in the old life to the new way of thinking in the new life in Christ. And what will happen is that you'll discover God's will as you just walk with him and you realize as time goes by that he's had every step ordained and laid out for me along the way. But it starts with one simple thing. First, do not be conformed to this world. But give yourself completely to God. Father, we just pray tonight that as we study this, this word and as we look at these things, that you would challenge us. That, Lord, you would open our understanding and that you would show us where in our lives we have conformed. Where we've allowed the world's ways to direct our behavior. And we've compromised our, our beliefs and our convictions based upon what the world calls acceptable, though yet we know you call it an abomination. Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would give us fresh wisdom, fresh vision, fresh faith. The Lord, that we would see through the lens of your word, this man Daniel and what you were able to do with him. And that Lord, we would be those people that would also purpose in our heart, that we don't want to be conformed to what the culture says is okay. And we don't want to be defiled by the delicacies of this world. We ask you, Father, to search our hearts right now. To show us where we've conformed. Where we've given in. Where we've allowed compromise to defile us. And Lord, that you would help us tonight to redo, To repent. Place our hearts again upon that altar of living sacrifice. We wouldn't be conformed to this world. And Lord, we ask that you would win. That you would win this work of transformation within us. That you would allow those old thoughts and old patterns to be deleted and completely erased. And that our minds would be renewed as we give ourselves completely to you. So we call on you tonight, Lord, for your help. We know that we're praying these things according to your will. May it be done in our lives. I pray for each person here. Please touch them. Touch us, Lord. And help us to grow and be stable and mature. Do this work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.